privilege to share with you from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, and then we're going to make applications today all from the book of Philippians. And let me begin by reading the text, and we'll pray, and then we'll dig into the Word of God. I'll read the text while we're on the slide. What we're reading here, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, and that you brought people to us to preach the gospel and to tell us how we could come to you. And may we be bold in the gospel as we learn from the Apostle Paul in this writing. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are pass- the next passage here, as we go to verse 1, and we'll dig into this. And I have the title here, Paul did not come to dazzle. There are a lot of different ways this has been translated. I chose this because it seemed to be a good way to uh, capture the meaning here. And let me again read that text. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, there's been a lot that's been said about this. And what we need to do is understand the meaning of the author. The Holy Spirit-inspired author, in this case, Paul, his meaning is God's meaning. The reader doesn't determine the meaning. Somebody's feelings do not determine the meaning. The Holy Spirit-inspired author does. So whatever Paul meant, and we want to know what that is, that's the meaning. And so I'm going to show you a lot of things today about how They lived in an honor-shame society. And in that context, we're going to discuss how God allowed his own son, in fact, sent his son to suffer shame. We saw that the last time in previous verses in order that us shameful sinners who hear and believe can find eternal honor that we don't deserve, but bestowed upon us by God, who is a merciful God. So in this uh, sense, let's look at this text. This means in context that Paul did not come to Corinth to make a display of his ability, this is my statement, to dazzle the audience. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to do a poor job. We should make everything we say clear, but it does mean that's what, excuse me, that's what is commonly honored in our society and what was honored there in Athens and then into Corinth, and then ultimately Paul writes to them uh, as he goes on in his journeys, what is honored? What's honorable? And I'll show you some citations from scholars that what is honored in our society may not be what God approves of. In fact, many people honor things that are, by their very essence, dishonorable. And so we need to know what God said. We definitely live in a time of shaking, fear, 
hopelessness, and worry. In fact, this is a very, very troubling time in the entire world, and particularly in our nation here in America. And so what has God given us that we can depend on and believe? And it's definitely not the superiority of the sophists, the people who can gather a big audience and dazzle them with things that maybe God never even said, but do so in the name of Christ. Superiority, hooper, excuse me, herpoke, hooperke, is a noun which means prominence or preeminence. And so this proclamation, this proclamation of the gospel doesn't depend on the ability to make everybody wish they would have been there if they weren't. Now, that's not a bad thing if it's the truth. But sometimes huge auditoriums are filled because of the eloquence of a speaker who doesn't proclaim the terms of the gospel. That doesn't tell us about Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, when asked, seem really confused if you ask them for the reason for the hope that's within them. And so if you don't know Christ, and you don't know what he said, and you don't know the terms of coming to him, dazzling the audience is going to actually make it worse. Because then your faith rests on something other than the finished work of Christ. One um, commentator, actually a very good scholar, Thistleton, translates it like this. High-sounding rhetoric or display of cleverness. High-sounding rhetoric or display of cleverness. And that could possibly make, make it worse. It's not that Paul's against clear speaking, but he's not a traveling sophist. He's not an orator like those that we ran into in Athens as we're studying through Acts. The word proclaiming, katangelo, and this one I dug down into because it's so important. Proclaiming in this verse, that word is used 18 times in the New Testament. 11 of those are in Acts, of which eight are directly about gospel proclamation. And the other three are indirectly related to it. Katangelo is used three times in 1 Corinthians, including this verse here. All are about the gospel. So uh, sometimes we hear, well, the missionary is the message. That's not true. There are plenty of missionaries that are very interesting, very articulate, very winsome. They maybe are very nice, but if you ask them for the reason of the hope that's within them, they can't even tell you about Christ and him crucified. Now, in this sermon, I hope to show from the original setting that what Paul had to say was considered dishonorable by everyone. You're not going to win over either Jews or uh, Roman citizens or anyone in that world by portraying something in a way that they see as dishonorable. But the very message itself is about a crucified Jewish Messiah, as we showed in previous sermons, that that was offensive. 
offensive to Jews, offensive to Greeks. So here, this proclamation is about the gospel being clearly preached. And furthermore, as we look at this word katangelo, it's used a couple times elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. One of those times is in connection with the Lord's Supper. When we believe the gospel, and as we gather together as one in Christ, according to the ordinance of God, and believe that Jesus Christ died for sins, Paul says we're proclaiming his death until he comes, using the same word. It's a proclamation. Did you know when you receive the Lord's Supper in faith, believing what he did and believing his promises, you're actually preaching the gospel? Proclaiming, katangelo. And so drilling down on the word, clearly as it's used in the New Testament, another case, Colossians 1.28, it's about gospel preaching. And so we'll see that as we go on. What did Paul preach in Athens? Well, some people have said he failed, so he had to change his message and his method. That's not true. That's not how Luke tells us about Paul's preaching in Athens where he was before he went to Corinth. What did he preach there? Future judgment and the resurrection of the dead. Did you know every sermon by a preacher that Luke portrays as a gospel preacher filled by the Spirit, sent by God, everyone included the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ultimate proof that the claims of the gospel are true is proof that God provided when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The evidence in history is clear. He really was raised from the dead. The tomb was empty. He did appear to witnesses. He didn't appear to mystics who had a subjective experience. He appeared to witnesses. Now, there is a manuscript issue. I'm just going to put it out there in case your translation says mystery of God. This is one of the cases where testimony of God and mystery of God are almost equally attested in early manuscripts. Don't be afraid about that. In 1 Corinthians, the testimony of God and the term mystery of God both are about the gospel. So if you look at the context, it doesn't change the meaning. So uh, there's probably some pretty good evidence for mystery of God, but both in the gospel mean that God has revealed the truth of how we come to him in Christ. Let's go to verse 2. Look at what Paul says here. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here, determined is an interesting word. Crino means judged. But in this context, it denotes Paul's focus. Now, if we read the epistles of Paul, he had a very broad scope of truth that had been given to him by Jesus Christ that's true and necessary to learn. But his focus was Jesus Christ and him crucified. That has to be there. It doesn't mean the only thing he knew, obviously. And here again, I'll I'll cite Dr. Thistleton. 
these observations to get together with what we know of the rhetorical background at Corinth release Paul, says Thistleton, of any hint of uncharacteristic or obsessional anti-intellectualism. Let me comment on that. This is me commenting on what he said. One of the things that has damaged evangelicalism in my lifetime is an anti-scholastic bias. And some people have actually taken taken verses like this and said, well, if you, if, if, I even heard someone say exegesis, which is, you know, bringing out the meaning. They make a little poem, exegesis, exegesis. So some people are actually saying that if you study, that if you learn, that you understand the text and you proclaim it clearly, that Jesus is grieved by being preached. <laughs> yeah, whoops is right. That's, not, that's clearly not the case. And in times of instability and fear and shaking, people need to know something solid proclaimed that will not change. And God has spoken. His word is true. God doesn't change. It's settled. And if preachers preach the scriptures and study hard to make sure this is what it really says and allow others to give evidence that it could be said in a different way or maybe we got something wrong, that's fine. We're learning, but we want to know what God said. Let me go back to Thistleton's comments again. Quote, or any lack of imagination or communicative flexibility. He said again, his settled resolve was that he would do only what served the gospel of Christ crucified, regardless of people's expectation or seductive shortcuts to success. Most of all, the seduction of self advertisement. Unquote. It doesn't matter how magnetic somebody's personality or, wow, that's great, because we've all seen instances where some of the most successful uh, evangelical things going on in America had no gospel. And we will not be judged ultimately in eternity for how big of a crowd we gathered, whether it's big or small, doesn't matter. It doesn't prove it wrong if there's a big crowd. It doesn't prove it right if there's a small crowd. Well, we are one to know, did Christ ordain that we preach the gospel? Yes. Did he ordain that we preach repentance for forgiveness of sins? Yes. If we preach by God's grace and testify by God's grace to what is true, ultimately, when it really matters in eternity, we won't have to be ashamed because God cannot lie. Earlier, I'll I'll leave this to later because I have another slide, but we see that this was clear in other parts of 1 Corinthians. And let's just go ahead to see this next slide. I want to introduce you, if you haven't heard of him, to Kenneth Bailey. Now, some years ago, in probably about 2008, 2009, I was preaching through Luke, and it was my privilege to meet John MacArthur 
at a event, and I, he was talking about Luke, and I asked about his source, and it was this Kenneth Bailey, and I began studying and reading his works. Kenneth Bailey is a scholar and a missionary. He spent most of his life in the Middle East, and his work shows that most of us don't understand the honor-shame situation in the Middle East. And the thing to be avoided at all costs is to be shamed by anything. And what we need to do is to be honored. And that's what was important. So now I see a, a book that I found in my library that I bought recently, Kenneth Bailey, Paul Through Mil- Mil- excuse me, Mediterranean Eyes. Now, here's a little different layout, but I think it's valid. There's some complexities, but I laid it out here the best I could. Paul in 1 Corinthians one seventeen was sent to preach the gospel. So in this sort of a layout, the beginning, the middle, and the end are emphatic, whether they're parallel or if it's an antithetical layout. So one seventeen, preach the gospel. One twenty three, preach Christ crucified. Two one, two two, the testimony of God, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What's emphatic and I believe this is a good reading, is to preach Christ. And Paul rejoices in that. We'll see that. Now, the point is this. It's it's utterly shocking how many times a, a prophet, a great person of God, comes into town or someone of prominence, and you ask them, what about Jesus? Who's Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? What's the essence of the gospel? And you get a blank stare. Well, then you know, I don't care how powerful they are. If you don't know who Christ is or you're ashamed to preach Christ, something is seriously wrong. The emphasis is obvious. Let me make a statement about this. This must be seen in the honor-shame culture of both Jews and Greeks of that day. If Paul had adapted the values of those cultures, he would avoid the shame and dishonor of preaching Christ crucified. Now that's clear from the context. And we've preached on that. No one, no one thought it was a good idea to embrace a dishonorable, crucified Jewish person who claimed to be some sort of king that they couldn't understand. Remember, what did Pilate say? What is truth? I don't care about this. There was shame. There was shame. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And so, if we love the honor that's bestowed upon us by this world and its values, there's so much pressure. There's such an attack. Preach Christ and him crucified. Paul knew lots of things because he was chosen as an apostle, one born out of time and taught by Christ himself. But if you don't know the essence of the gospel, Christ crucified, what good is everything else? I say it's worthless. What value would it be if we received honor from everyone around us And in the final day, the day of judgment, we're dishonored. 
It's very clear in Lokiaks that it would be utterly worthless. So today, I'm going to use the book of Philippians for all of the applications because I think it's applicable to a lot of things we're dealing with. So in the applications, I have three points that we'll cover. God will providentially bring opportunities for the gospel. In fact, that is what brought my mind to Philippians because that's where he said something about that. We'll see that. The person and work of Christ must be preached. Must be preached. Third, Christian hope and assurance is found in Christ, not the world. Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. And that, I believe, we can see in the book of Philippians. I preached in Philippians a long time ago, early 2000s. Let's go to Philippians 1, 12 and 13. I'm pulling things out here because of the theme, and I think you'll see why as we go along. Paul, by the way, Philippians, when was it written? Probably about 61, 62 A.D., Paul was imprisoned in Rome. If you read the book of Acts, as you get to the end, Paul was intent to get on all the way to Rome, and that's where he ended up. We don't know if he ever made it to Spain, but we know he was in prison in Rome. You could read Acts at the very end, Acts 26, 27, 28, Paul's message, his appearances, the shipwreck. And so on, he ends up in Rome. So somewhere around 61, 62 A.D., Paul was in Rome. And anybody looking at it, this is rather shameful. What kind of great prominent preacher ends up as a prisoner in chains in Rome? Now, we know from Acts he had rented quarters, but he was in Rome. Now, let's read the text. Now, I want you to know, brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now, I've entitled this Gospel Opportunities. We've been talking about providence, and we need to learn more about the doctrine of providence. Many people have contacted me recently that are afraid. They see their lives falling apart. And those around that we thought maybe were with us turned out not to be. Many people are shaking. And what yesterday was, by the way, the day that got everybody's attention when those Twin Towers went down. And some people contacted me about that. And the fact is that we need to have gospel hope, and we need it right now. Whatever happens, we don't know the future other than what's predicted in the Bible. But in this case, we have something very shameful in the eyes of Romans and Jews and Greeks, whatever culture we want to talk about, Gentiles and Jews. This was God's providence that that's where he ended up. But notice how he says this. My circumstances have turned out 
for the greater progress of the gospel. Dear ones, if you're committed to Christ and his gospel, we don't know where we might end up. If somebody told me the different places I would have ended up uh, when I became a Christian, I would never have believed it. No way would I believe that I'd be where some of the places I've been, some things I've witnessed. uh, Somebody could have said, well, you're going to spend 25 years working at a certain location in Minneapolis, and now uh, it's not even hardly usable there if you were still there. The post office burned down. The bank destroyed and looted. The place we got the mail, gone. The hardware store we used to get parts, looted. The place is it's a dangerous place. I never thought I'd see the day where I watch live as people are marching and burning and looting, going right past the exact location I spent 25 years working at. But I did. I saw it. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't need to know. What we need to know is that our circumstances, if we're willing to preach Christ, will turn out for the greater progress of the gospel because of his providence. I believe that right now. Progress means advancement, the gospel being spread as the Lord ordained. The context shows what Paul means by progress. And there's a a word in the Greek there that means going forward. Elsewhere I've said, and let me cite uh, my statement on this, we need to be concerned about the progress of the gospel defined biblically as the person and work of Christ and reject any progressive gospel. The progress of the gospel, not the progressive gospel. What's the progressive gospel? Well, don't worry about future judgment. Everything's going to get better. We're all evolving into some better future. The gospel may have been suitable for people those days, but now we know better. Now we know that people won't listen to a crucified message about a crucified Jewish Messiah, but they will listen to this. Whatever their progress leads away from the gospel is not progress at all. It's digress. If we can't preach Christ, why are we here? It doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't make it better to be one location or another. That's part of God's providence. The word gospel here, euangelion, and in its very root is where we have the idea of, of evangel, the uh, noun ver- version, euangelizo, is also used in 1 Corinthians 1.17. So Paul in 1 Corinthians is using various terms that all have to do with the gospel. Evangelize, euangelizo, proclaim Christ, carangelo, preach Christ, caruso, kerygma, nouns, verbs, but they're all about preaching Christ. They could be adapted to something else, but why be here? It'd be an utter waste of time to gather people and tell them that you can have your best life now. Because now you've taken away eternal hope. 
Oh, yes, that's so sad. If we had no eternal hope, then what do we think is going to happen? There will be no judgment? Do you believe in any kind of evolution? Everything's evolving toward Godhood? Two people I know, one contacted me yesterday by email. Had a, he told me he had a job at one time, previous, on the exact floor where the plane went in. This is way back. Well, and uh, our daughter, Jessica, said that she would have gone through where the Mississippi River fell into the bridge, fell into the river, but something delayed her and she went some other direction. So two people I know could just as easily have died, fallen in the river. And so we don't know what's going to happen. But what about providence? God will get us to the right place at the right time with the right message if we're focused on preaching Christ. And that doesn't imply that anybody who died or anybody in a car did fall into the river, all these different things. Romans eight twenty eight to the very end of that chapter shows that God will get us all the way to glory if we're trusting in Christ. Circumstances. Circumstances. Let's go to the next slide. Philippians 1, 14. 1, 14. And that most of the brethren, let's talk about Christians, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word without fear. Now, the next section, the next section in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, Paul will say, I came to you in fear of trembling. What kind of a bold man of God shows up in fear and trembling? Not what they're looking for. But because of God's providence, Paul can say they're trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. Have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Why would anyone have fear about speaking the word? Well, everyone would if you understand the honor-shame culture. The word of the gospel, the word of Christ, is shameful to everybody but those who believe. Don't believe the sanitized, polished, uh, seeker-sensitive, fancy word of Christianity that everybody would like. The true gospel is very shameful in the eyes of the fallen world. A crucified Jewish Messiah? That's all you have? And so, because the entire world will always attack the gospel, it takes God's grace and a solid understanding of what God has said that any of us could ever have courage to speak the word of God without fear. If we preach what God actually said, there'll be difficulties and sorrows. There always are. As I say in the slide here, as the gospel is preached, despite sorrows and difficulties, others are encouraged. The only encouragement we have to offer that'll work in any culture around the world is the encouragement that God will keep you, 
He will use the truth of the gospel to save those who will believe, and you'll never ultimately be shamed if that's what your message is. It doesn't depend on anything but what Christ did in the proclamation of the truth. And one more statement here. They see what happened once Paul was in a Roman prison. They were even more confident God was at work in these circumstances. What kind of a victory is it to be arrested and sent off like a shameful slave? That's what happened. Continuing, rather than shame that God, that Paul was a prisoner, they gained more courage, less fear, and they also speak the truth of the gospel. If God can use someone who was a former enemy, Saul of Tarsus, one who was beaten, shipwrecked, hated, scorned, and all these things, God can use him, God can use any who will be bold in the gospel. The ending of Acts 28 helps us see why this is so significant. Let's go to Philippians 1, 15 through 17. This one, when I first read it, seemed odd to me, and now I can understand why it's important. Philippians 1, 15 through 17. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill, that word is eudokia. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Now we'll go on here to the beginning of verse 18, but let's talk about this one a little bit. It's always right to preach Christ out of goodwill, Eudokia, and appointed here, by the way, is a good translation. Uh, it was used, by the way, by Simeon in Luke 2.34 to marry about Christ. This one is appointed, the Christ. Did you know that Jesus Christ himself God the Son, the virgin-born Son of God. If you weren't here, you got to hear Eric's sermon on the virgin birth. It's great. Did you know that the circumstances, as we've seen, are shameful? But he was appointed, and when he went into his own hometown and went to the synagogue in Luke 4, oh, they loved it. This is great. I'm, I'm not saying this literally. Wow, look at this. Somebody from here, they opened the scripture they read from Isaiah. And what did they end up doing in Luke 4? At the end, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Nice reception in your hometown. The point is, the truth is not always rarely well received other than by those whose hearts are softened by the Conviction of the Holy Spirit. So the noun here, you want Gilead, I mentioned that. Defense, apologia. Apologetics is not apologizing for being a Christian. It's giving evidence why it's true. Do you understand that? So it's good to, to study apologia. 
So his defense of the gospel was not, try it out, I think you'll like it. No, this one whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. This one, this crucified one, this one that you think is shameful, bodily rose from the dead and ascended into heaven before witnesses. Apologetics is, is important because the facts point of this really happening. I read so much this last week about Philippi and Athens and Corinth and Rome and all of these different facts. And one source, and I don't remember which one, said Luke may have been one of the greatest historians of that part of history. Luke keeps getting proven right. We saw that in Sunday school. Gallio, the dates, the times, and everything. Apologia, the gospel, the message, the proclamation. Now, some people don't have good motives. They think, well, I'm a better preacher than Paul, so envy and strife. Here's something that I've believed for a long time. If people will preach the truth about Christ, even if they're something not quite right, many of you, in fact, I've talked to a lot of people who were going somewhere where they first heard about Christ and became Christian and then realized, you know, there's some problems here. Anybody ever, you don't have to raise your hand, but a lot of us, uh, I've heard that so often. If people will preach Christ, God will use it to save people. But if you have a false Christ, then you're not going to be converted by believing lies. But if Paul can rejoice that Christ is preached, even when it's not done as well as it should or out of the best motives, if that's why I've talked to so many people. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Maybe they don't want to, but if they do, God will use it. Let's go to verse 18a. Philippians 1, 18a. And then we want to go back and look at honor, shame, and acts. Philippians 1, 18a. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this I rejoice. Wow. If you uh, have the concordance, they help you do it. I like using the one that'll click under the Greek words and it'll go around and find all of the usage. Rejoicing, it's interesting what we rejoice in. In fact, it'll tell us everyone something about what's important in our minds and our hearts. So Paul is rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed. If it's accurate, if it's true, if it's the gospel, let's rejoice. Other things are less important. I have a statement to make about this. Therefore, if Christ is preached with clarity and accuracy, which must include the person and work of Christ, then God will use that to save those who will believe. Those with envy likely thought they would be better suited than a jailed preacher. But God will use the truth of the gospel. I'm not in jail. Listen to me. Well, God will use who he uses, but the message has to be accurate. 
Now look at Acts 5.41. It's a little review from Acts and Luke Acts, a two-volume work. But if you understand the honor-shame culture they lived in, this verse will blow your mind to use the term from the 70s. Because I'm dating myself. Uh, let me get, uh, this term will be amazing. Let's say it that way. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In that culture, dishonor has to be avoided. You don't rejoice when you're dishonored. The Middle East, according to Bailey, and he's a very good source, having spent most of his life in uh, these cultures as a missionary, you do not want to be dishonored. And it's hard to objectively look at one's own culture because it's hard to see any other way. The thing that can help us is just understand the Bible. I'm not an expert on American system of thinking, but I think, as I observe it, we think success is good and failure is bad. Sometimes the sayings of a culture show that. Have you ever heard the saying, nothing succeeds like success? Sounds like a truism, but... It's pretty accurate. And you could also say nothing fails like failure. But the fact is, what we need is the gospel. And we do not need to take the gospel and import the values of a pagan culture and say, this is good because it's successful. But how do you define its success? Having more than somebody else, having more authority. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all that's of the world. It's not from God. And so what we need to understand is this is astounding. You're not going to say that. Oh, I'm worthy to be dishonored. Not in that culture, but they did rejoice. One more statement as we need to move on here. Who is there with... In such a honor-shame culture, who would rejoice at being dishonored? It's my statement. The answer in Luke Acts is that God in Christ already suffered dishonor, honor, shame of the cross to bring sinners into the ultimate honor of being part of the family of God, citizens of heaven. The only reason they rejoice was they believed the promises of God in Christ. I know of no other explanation that people in an honor-shame culture would rejoice at being dishonored. They believed Christ, and he already suffered the worst dishonor. There are other parables, but we don't have time to cover that, but we will in the future. Philippians three eighteen and 19. I know I'm moving ahead, but there's reason for it. And I hope we see it soon here as we look at all this. Now, Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I often told you, and I'll tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, 
whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. What does that mean? Well, I have a bullet point here. Destruction, apolia, is used in Philippians 1.28 as the opposite of salvation. Destruction, eternal damnation, the ultimate shame, the son of destruction. That was Judas, characterized by being under God's wrath. Those who glory in what they can achieve in this life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, also pride of life, are facing destruction. Apollia. That's, by the way, an illusion or a citation, parts of 1 John 2, 16 and 17. Think about this right now. In this time of shaking and fear, unrest and tumult, as bad as I've seen, at least since the 60s, maybe it passed then. What kind of citizenship is unshakable? Let's look. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, as we go to the next slide. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, what does Paul mean here? Our citizenship is in heaven. The word here for citizenship, and it'll be used elsewhere as once as a noun, and another time in a little different form, it's the same idea. Paul was a Roman citizen. He appealed to that. Remember, some people flogged him, and he said, well, you can't do that. I'm a citizen. And then they were worried about what was going to happen to them. You know, Philippi, if you ever study the background, most everybody now can go on the computer and find things about facts. But let me just share something. Philippi was an outpost that was populated by military veterans, and they were very proud of their citizenship because it was bestowed upon them by an emperor. And it was Philippi where Paul came, and there wasn't a heavy Jewish presence or presence, but Lydia was there and others. And Lydia, a merchant, believed in the Lord and became a key person in the gospel in Philippi, and they were proud of their citizenship, of Roman citizenship. But here Paul's talking about something even more profound. It was his appeals that led him to being a prisoner of Rome with some kind of freedom. But what citizenship could ever be true for you today that is always going to be honorable in the eyes of God? It's never going to ultimately be defeated. It's going to result in glory and honor before God, no matter who you were in your past, no matter where you came from, what horrible things you did to yourself, others, people that loved you, how many failures we've ever had. Today, if we appeal to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, 
this is the citizenship, this eternal, and it's provided to those who trust in Christ. That's why Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel as a prisoner in Rome, because he knew he had citizenship in heaven. And how does that happen? When we believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord, we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that's talked about several places. Acts 26, 18, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, elsewhere. It's a transfer. We're still, he was still a citizen of Rome. He was still a, a Jew who was zealous for the law, who was determined to go to Jerusalem even though rejection waited for him there. Today, it's my honor to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're preaching Jesus Christ, and we know that that's what we should rejoice in, the gospels preached, the first thing we need to know is Jesus Christ just a mere man who started a religion. No. Many different groups have a version of Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Mormons believe that Jesus is the half-brother of Satan, if I got that right. Others believe that he was some uh, mighty prophet, but not the claims that he made. Others believe he was a social Jesus that came to make the world a better place to live in. That has never really worked out, has it? The world is heading toward judgment, not not toward paradise. But the Bible claims that Jesus Christ existed for all eternity as God and with God. Always go back to John 1, 1 through 18 to see that claim. Eric's been preaching on the virgin birth. All of this points to the uniqueness of Christ, the deity of Christ, who also in the incarnation, fully human and fully God, the incarnation, the virgin born son of God the very creator of the universe, God the Son, the anointed one, meaning the anointed Messiah, Christ. This one lived a sinless life, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He died for sins once for all. Yes, it was shameful. Yes, he was mocked by Jews. Yes, he was mocked by pagans and Romans and all around. But that was God's intent to willingly suffer shame from wicked creatures that could have been wiped out, humans that could have been wiped out. Suffer, call the angels, wipe them out. But that was not God's intent. He didn't call for that legion of angels. He suffered. He was dead, buried, raised on the third day, appeared to many witnesses, He spoke the truth. He proved on the road to Emmaus many things from the Old Testament to his own disciples. He bodily ascended into heaven. According to Psalm 110, in verse 1, he reigns at the right hand of God. Those who know him have access to the throne of grace. What's the gospel? What did he do? Who he is? I told you. What did he do? Died for sins once for all. Bodily sent into heaven. What does he expect? Repentance for forgiveness of sins. 
turning from serving self, Satan, the world, religion, wickedness, anything. Turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Repent and turn and turn are synonymous. Turn to Christ. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins are washed away. And at that point, there's more in the future, you're transferred and become citizens of heaven. We're hoping for the wrong things way too many times. So many hopes have been dashed. So many promises broken. So many grandiose claims made by religious people, including ones claiming to be Christian, have fallen apart, failed, gone to nothing. But I proclaim to you, based on God's word, not what I think, that citizenship in heaven is the only thing that will last forever. That citizenship is conferred upon those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he expect? Repent, believe in him, trust in him alone, turn to him. Embrace, I found an old slide from a long time ago and adapted it. Embrace the shame of the cross now and have eternal glory, or reject the shame of the cross now by seeking honor from this fallen world and have the ultimate shame that will come through the wrath that's yet to come, future judgment. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ today and believe on him. One last slide. What about for those who already know Christ and have turned to him? Well, here's the other word for citizen here, although they're slightly different. Citizenship um, was a noun in Philippians 3.20. Here, citizens of heaven. It's almost impossible to translate it into English. So I found one uh, translation in Christian Standard Bible that did a pretty good job of it. It takes a lot of words. It's a concept. It's a valid one, but hard to put into English. Citizens of heaven is a verb in the imperative, which is hard to translate into English. It is defined to conduct oneself with proper proper reverence to one's obligations in relationship to others as part of some community, unquote, from Lao Anita. Now, that's a big statement. But we are citizens of heaven, so how we live, what we believe, what's important to us is to show that that's true. That's showing everyone around. That's like Paul saying, my circumstances have turned out for the bigger progress of the gospel. It says in Hebrews twelve twenty eight, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What do we do? What does God want Christians to do now? Preach Christ, believe the promises of God, Live as citizens of heaven, if you know him, and don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of it. It's very rarely popular throughout history that the gospel is popular in, in any culture. 
So today, may God give us grace to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. Further explained is live your life worthy of the gospel. It's going to take a lot of grace, but God will give it to us. And then, in blue, we we use this for Critical Issues Commentary podcast, standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. If we do that, that's what it looks like to be citizens of heaven. That's what God wants. And therefore, God will give us grace to that end. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy. And as we live in perilous times, shaking and fear, sorrow all around us, difficulties that everyone is experiencing, may we continue to trust you and believe your promises. And today I pray that some who hear this would repent, turn to you, find forgiveness of sins, and be enrolled in heaven as a citizen, be God by your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.